There are some things which just don't have an explanation. That's the theme for this episode of White Heron Radio Theater's Ghostlight Series. And with that in mind, we'll delve into something unexplainable that happened at a well-known location on Nantucket, and follow that up with a story about one family's encounter with something they couldn't explain in their own house. And then we'll come back and have a discussion with award-winning sound designer John Gramada, who composes original music and provides sound design for all of our stories on the Ghost Light series, and we'll ask him how he creates acoustic magic and why audio drama is the perfect medium for telling scary stories. So, without further ado, welcome to White Heron Radio Theater. Hello, this is Lynn Bolton, Artistic Director of the White Heron Theater on Nantucket. In the theater, we have a tradition. Whenever the stage goes dark between performances, we leave a single light burning in the house until the curtain can rise again. We call it a ghost light. And until we can all meet once more at White Heron, we're pleased to offer you something we like to call our Ghost Light series, original Nantucket radio drama created especially for you, our White Heron audience. If you want to catch something you can't see, you've got to have patience. Got to position yourself in the right place and wait. Can't rush things. Got to have a feel for it. That takes time to learn. Some days you come up empty-handed. It's not always up to you. Fish, the currents, they have something to say about that. Got to understand the currents, you see. The best place to catch stripers or blues is Great Point, right near the lighthouse at the northern tip of the island where the fish swim right through the rip. I've been bringing my rod to this spot long as I can remember. Come out around sunrise, have all Nantucket sound to yourself. Use a good lure, nothing too fancy, don't waste a lot of money on that. Maybe a good Danny plug, a spook plug. Cast it out! Reel it back in, nice and slow. A lot of people I see fishing, they have their drag set too loose. That's not good. You want to play the fish with as much drag as you can. As I say, the thing is to have patience. Because it's a whole other world you're trying to connect with out there in the water. Especially when it's dark. I think about that when I'm fishing something out there just below the surface. Sometimes you reel in something you didn't expect. Sometimes that's just what happens. Can't plan it. It's like what happened to me at the house on Mill Street, you know. There was something there just below the surface. I don't know what it was. People always want an explanation for things they don't understand. I'm not offering any explanations. I can't tell you what I saw. But it was there. You can believe me or not. It was there. In the house on Mill Street. Shimmer. Adapted by Mark Shanahan from a story by Blue Balliette.
Yeah. Parker, this is Helen Greer over at the Historical Association. No, ma'am. Hope you're doing well. We're all so grateful for the extra hours you put in during the renovation at the 1800 house. You did a wonderful job. Thank you, ma'am. Glad to be on the project. Oh, which is why it's so funny to call you about this. I don't want you to think I'm questioning your work, of course. You're the best electrician on the island, which is why we always call on you when you're available. But it's about the alarm system you put in at the house. It's not working? Oh, no, 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 it's working fine. But um, I don't know how to explain this. It goes off at quarter to midnight every Tuesday and Thursday. And only Tuesdays and Thursdays, it seems. Huh. The police swing by each time the alarm is tripped and the house is fully locked. Except for a door on the ground floor, the latch door between the west parlour and the keeping room. I know the one. It's always open. Isn't that the strangest thing? It is, yeah. I, I wouldn't make a fuss over it, but, um, well, it's happened a few times now and we just... Can't seem to figure it out. The house is due to reopen for public visitors in a few weeks, and we want to get it ready. Of course you do. Would you do us a big favour and just take a look at it? I'm sure it's something simple you can fix. Maybe a a faulty wire? I'm very sorry about this, ma'am. I always stand by my work. Oh, please don't apologise. Like I said, you are the best. Just stop by the house today, if you could, if you have a spare moment, and see what you find, all right? The 1800 house on Mill Street is in an older section of Nantucket's town. It's got no sidewalk in front of it, just sits there on a little rise of ground, steep flight up the stairs to the front door. It's been open to the public some years now. Historical Association fixed it up, made it kind of a museum. The tourists like to come through, see how people used to live in the old days, see what island living was like at the end of the whaling era. The house is an artifact now, I guess. I like working on the old houses, better than tearing them down, you know. But this house is different than most. It's always had a feeling of being separate. Changed hands only five times since 1800 before they opened it to the public. A lot went on inside that place, I guess. Last year I did all the wiring during the renovation. When you work on these old houses the way I do, you get to know them. Every rounded corner, every crooked floorboard. It was the fall, and I'd be there by myself a lot, which is how I like to work, alone. Just me and the radio. I'd listen to whatever, music, sports, call-in shows. And then sometimes I'd just hear something else inside the house, and I'd turn the radio off and... Just listen. You can hear a house talking to you, if that makes sense. A different kind of conversation. Ticks, creaks, you know. The Mill Street house, it's got a personality. All houses do, I guess. But this one, it's not what you'd call welcoming. Kind of formal looking, for one thing. Central door, two windows either side. When you when you enter the front hall, there's a steep staircase jutting right up to the second floor. Easy to twist your ankle on the steps if you're not careful. Couple of parlor rooms downstairs and what they used to call a keeping room, where they did most of the cooking and living in the old days, especially in the winter. On the west end of this room, that's 
where the door is, the one that was tripping the alarm system. There's empty room on the other side, and the door's got a latch, the kind that's set into a cradle nearly half-inch deep. kind you have to lift up if you want to open it. The alarm is one of those new ones, infrared ultrasonic rays, backed by magnetic contacts fastened onto the doors and windows, and when the system is on, the alarm goes off and alerts the police if any solid objects pass through the beams. It's a big job to put the system in, believe me, and I did it by the book, down to the letter. There's no reason for it to malfunction, but something was wrong. So I disconnected it anyway, just to be sure. Yeah? Parker, Helen Greer again. You're not going to believe this, Parker. It happened again, right on schedule. It's a Wednesday, so I went by this morning, and the door inside was open again. Oh, this has been going on for weeks now. I don't know what to tell you, ma'am. Well, I mean, there must be some explanation, don't you think? I mean... What can we do? I went around and talked to the police about it. They didn't know what to say. Possibility, something that couldn't be explained, was never mentioned. Nobody wanted to say the obvious thing. They never do. A lot of guesses, though. Pranksters, car vibrations coming from the street. People always want an explanation. But, you know, I mean, nobody was going in there and opening that door. Nobody. Parker! Where have you been hiding yourself, man? Uh, hey there, Jim. Can't have you sitting here at the bar of the Brotherhood all alone on a cold winter night. A couple of the guys sitting in the back room, Neil Conklin, Peter Benjamin. It's a good time. Come on, join us. Nah, just finishing up. About to head home. Thanks. Right, then. They miss working with you, Parker. You're still the best electrician on the island. Don't sell yourself short there, Jim. Praise from the master. They learned everything I know from you, Parker. Well, you know, glad you're doing well and all that. They are, yeah. Been working on the new hotel. It's been a big job. Gonna be a rush to get it ready by summer. Yeah, always the way, isn't it? <laughs> well, night, Jim. They heard you were having some troubles on a job too, Parker. What do you mean? The 1800 house. The alarm. You heard about that? Yeah, a couple of guys were talking. Who's talking? Oh, just some of the fellas. Say there's a problem over there on your Mill Street job. You figure it out yet? I don't know, Jim. Well... If there's a problem you can't solve, then it's got no solution as far as I'm concerned. Well, I'm going over there tomorrow night. It's Tuesday. It always happens on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm going to stay there by myself all night and see what happens. A stakeout, huh? I don't want to butt in, but would you like some help from your old assistant? Jim Maloney's a good guy. Doesn't always make the smartest choices in life, though. He wears his Yankee cap in a Red Sox town, you know what I mean? But I always liked him. Worked hard, stayed late, got it done. Best assistant I ever had, no question. But most jobs I can do on my own, and the guy's a talker, which, you know, that's not me. So 
A lot of times we'd be working together and it'd be me saying, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, and him jabbering away about something. If I'm honest, I didn't like what he said about other people talking about the 1800 house and my little problem. If he saw what I was dealing with, he'd go and tell them. He'd tell everyone. It wasn't my work that was being questioned, you know. He would tell them. There was something else going on. All right, Parker, buddy. We're here. What's the plan now? Follow me inside. Watch your step in the dark. I got a flashlight. Man, look at this place. Even after that renovation you worked on, this place still feels ancient. Want me to turn on the overhead light? No. Le- leave it off. Don't disturb anything. And just... Stay quiet, Jim. Right then. Can do. Quiet. Boy, Parker, you walk through these old places and it makes you glad for modern living, you know? Oh, cable, TV, hot water, electricity. I wouldn't have lasted two minutes in the old days. You know, where's this door I heard all about? Over here. Don't touch it. This it? Oh, yeah. That's a deep latch. And every Wednesday and Friday morning they find the door open, huh? Yep. You think maybe it gets jiggled by a passing truck or something out in the street? Nope. No, I don't suppose it'll be something like that. Groove's too deep on the catch here. Oh, hey, maybe... Hey, hey, stop that. What are you doing? Just jumping up and down. Wanted to see if the latch would bounce free... It won't. So, what are you saying? I mean, there's only one reasonable conclusion, right? The latch is being lifted. Yep. But, by who? Someone playing some kind of trick on you, Parker? Don't think so. So, if you're not saying somebody is coming in here and lifting the latch, what are you saying? Not saying anything. Oh, come on, Parker. You don't believe it's some kind of... Oh, come on. You don't believe that. I don't. You're a funny one, Parker. Still waters run deep. I'll never figure you out, man. So what are you going to do about all of this? All right. Make sure that door is closed and the latch is all the way down now, here. The latch is down. Now... Come over here by the hallway, Jim. Over by the storage closet. Here. Now get inside. Inside? Right. What'd you turn the flashlight off for? Want it to be dark. Your eyes will adjust. So, we're both gonna hide in the storage closet? Yep. All right. And now that we're standing here, shoulder to shoulder in the pitch black dark... Now what? We wait. But even if you turned the flashlight on, we couldn't see that door with the latch from inside this closet. We can hear it if we're quiet. We're going to stand in here in silence. For how long are we going to do that? Long as it takes. Well, now this will make a story for the guys tomorrow night at the bar at the Brotherhood, won't it? Jim, 
Yeah? Quiet. Right. The whole idea of just standing there in the dark, waiting in silence, that's hard for a guy like Jim. But not me. It's no different than surf casting at great point before dawn, really. Like I said, you gotta have patience. You've gotta stay open to the possibility of whatever's gonna happen and just wait. Hell of a way to spend a cold February night. Because if something's really out there, something you can't see, you need to be ready when the time comes. And if you can't see it, if you're in the dark, you use your other senses, use your ears, you listen, you just listen. You keep your antenna out, get a feel for the energy around you, understand how currents flow, whether it's electricity or wind or water. Or something else. Is it getting colder in here? Sorry. Funny thing happens when you do sit in silence. Most people never do it. They can't stand to just be quiet. But if you practice, you get used to it. And then time feels different. Maybe it's been 30 minutes. Maybe an hour. Maybe two. You can't tell. It doesn't matter. You wait. And after a while, you become aware of a lot of things you try to block out most of the time. Sounds that are always lurking around in the background of your day-to-day life. You hear those sounds you usually try not to pay attention to for one reason or another. But you realize they're always there. It's like tuning into a distant radio station when you're way offshore. Maybe a faint signal, but it's there. If you listen, it's there. And when you're tuned in just right, that's when you hear... What the heck was that? Shh, shh. It's all right. Where are you going? Jim, listen to me. Don't call out. Don't make a sound. Going into the other room, all right? Okay. Right. Right now. I'm following you now. Okay. You first. Uh, Look at that. Parker! The door with the latch. It's open. The door is open. Yeah, it is. Nobody else came in here, but we would have heard it. Parker, right? Parker! Tell Parker, why are you just standing there? What are you looking at? Parker! Say something! Oh. What was that? There's something in the other room, isn't there? Parker! There's something moving in the other room, isn't there? Jim. Yeah? Don't move. There's a light 
There's something in the other room, Parker. It's getting stronger. Don't move. Let it come. There's definitely something there. It's not a person, is it? No, I don't think so. It's coming through the door. It's all right now. I do. There's, there's something there. It's like a... circle of light coming through the door. What the heck is that? Parker, what is it? Stand still, Jim. It's coming towards us. Stand still. No, 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 no. You feel that? It's horrible. Horrible, the coldness. Don't move, Jim. Come on, Parker. Let's get out of here. Don't you touch that thing. Don't let it come closer. Come on, man. Come on. No. Parker, come on. I wasn't going to follow Jim. This thing, whatever it was, I wanted to see it. It was the size of a ball you could hold in two hands, like a shimmering, floating bubble. You could see through it like wax paper, but it glowed, pulsing a greenish light in and out, in every direction. Somehow, even though it didn't have eyes, I felt like it was looking right at me. And I said, all right, I'm, I'm here now. I'm, I'm not scared. I'm not moving. What do you want? Show me. What do you want? And this ball of light, it, it circled me like, like a shark might circle a seal in the water, sizing me up, deciding. It just circled all around me, and I, I felt the coldness deep inside me start to shake all over, like I was vibrating, like a jolt had gone through me, a current passing through my whole body, and the light came right up to my face, hovering just for a moment, and then turned away like it wasn't interested in me anymore. Went through the west parlor, slowly past the hallway and the storage closet, and toward the front door of the house stopping by the door and then I just stood there and watched as it made its way up the crooked steps of the steep staircase up to the second floor. I didn't follow it up there. I walked over to the foot of the stairs and looked up and it was gone. The light was out. Coldness had passed. I was alone in the house again. That's all that happened. That's what I saw. Yeah? Parker, it's Helen Greer from the Historical Association. Morning, ma'am. Well... It's Friday morning. And? And the door is still closed. You fixed it. 
It was a simple thing, man. Oh, what did you do? Went by at lunchtime yesterday and fastened a little eye hook on the side of the door. Hooking the eye pretty tight. How to keep the door closed now. Oh, thank you. Not at all. And Parker, I ought to tell you, another electrician, fellow named uh, Jim Maloney, is telling some tales about going over there the other night with you. He says you saw something. I did, ma'am. And? What was it you saw? Can't say as I know. But it was real. Whatever it was. Oh, I don't doubt you, Parker. If you say you saw something, I'm sure you did. Of course, there's probably some explanation, don't you think? I don't know why people need an explanation. Lots of things crop up in old houses on Nantucket, and people get uncomfortable with that. If you don't believe me, that's all right. You can go see the house for yourself. It's open to the public. They got kind of a tour guide and everything during business hours, but they never say anything about what I saw. <laughs> I was once at the bar at the Brotherhood, and I overheard a college professor say that some unexplainable appearances might be an electrical process not yet understood in scientific terms. Something to do with water in the ground, and... The atmosphere, I don't know. <laughs> maybe. But maybe some things just are, you know, and can't name it. Just got to accept there's more out there. It's why I go fishing. Stand out at Great Point long enough in the darkness before dawn and listen to the sounds, listen to the tide, get a feel for the currents, how they're running. In the end, you're just a fisherman on an island. Water's all around you. And the fish are swimming everywhere in the dark just below the surface. You toss your lure out there as far as you can and see what comes back because there's something there. Even if you can't see it, it's there. Just be patient. It'll come to you. Yeah. There's always something there, just below the surface. Oh, got one. Shimmer, adapted by Mark Shanahan from the story The Shimmering Bubble by Blue Balliette. Published in Nantucket Ghosts, 44 True Accounts. The cast featured Michael Kopko as Parker, Kieran Byrne as Jim, and Sandra Shipley as Helen. Shimmer was directed by Mark Shanahan with original music, sound, and production design by John Gramada. Nantucket Ghosts, 44 True Accounts, is published by Down East Books and is available at Mitchell's Book Corner, Nantucket Bookworks, and available for download on iBooks. My son Jimmy suffered the most from this whole experience. He was just old enough to be really traumatized by what he had seen. He would never stay alone in the house after that, even during the day. And he would get jumpy and irritable when he asked about her. 
Jim and I and our two kids had rented one of the old farmhouses in Pulpis on the north side of the island. Jimmy was nine at the time. He and his sister Erin, who was six, had adjoining bedrooms upstairs. Jim and I slept on the first floor. Jimmy woke up one night to see a little girl standing in the dark on the side of his bed. He said, half asleep, what do you want, Aaron? When she didn't move or answer, it began to dawn on him that something was wrong. He jumped out of the other side of the bed and ran into Aaron's room. She was fast asleep. He woke up his sister, and the two of them came thumping and shrieking downstairs and dove into bed with us. Jimmy was terrified and had trouble sleeping for weeks afterward. In fact, we could never get him and Aaron to sleep upstairs again. We eventually stopped trying and set up a little bedroom for them down near ours. My husband and I thought Jimmy had probably had a bad nightmare, and we didn't pay much attention to his story. I did realize, however, that he was genuinely terrified by the memory of this little child. About a week later, all four of us were jammed into the double bed, Jim and I still hoping the kids would get over this and go back upstairs. It was a sticky, hot August night. All I could hear was the constant, piercing whine of mosquitoes. Each time one of us slapped, the others would get bounced, bumped, or woken up. I was in the middle. Finally, I got up and stretched out on the living room couch. I was lying on my back, just drifting off, when I saw a little girl standing in the shadows on the other side of the room. She looked slightly taller than Aaron. As I opened my eyes completely, she began to walk toward me. I remember that she was wearing a dark kerchief tied under her chin. Although I couldn't make out her facial features or the details of her body, I was aware that she was walking slowly, not drifting or floating. She had a long skirt or dress on. My first reaction to her approach was a strange one, and perhaps instinctive? I felt that she had mistaken me for her mother, and that she was coming over to me as if to give me a hug or nestle up to me. I felt a sudden rush of panic as she reached the end of the couch. I leapt up, explaining, what in the heck? As soon as I spoke, she vanished. I had never seen an apparition before. It would never have counted myself among the believers of such things. However, this child was real. She was no dream. The sight of her approaching me, her head hidden in that little kerchief, is still as vivid as can be. It still gives me goosebumps. I was objectively curious about this little person, but I was also shaken. The idea that she might have mistaken me for her own mother was pathetic, but more than that, alarming. After all, my family and I had to go on living in the house. I guess I also felt vaguely guilty that I had jumped up from the couch. I had an unpleasant, lingering certainty that she had wanted something from me. 
I still wonder at odd moments what might have happened if I hadn't moved. I brought the kids' things downstairs the next day and we converted a small room off the front hallway into a bedroom for them. I told my husband about having seen Emily, as we later named her, on the night it happened. I told my kids the next morning and Jimmy was reassured to hear that I had also seen the little girl. I tried to present the experience in a matter-of-fact way. If we had to share the house with a ghost, I thought it would be best that we try to be straightforward about it. I did look into the history of the house. It was built in the first quarter of the 19th century. I talked with some of the older Nantucketers in Pulpis, but they didn't remember hearing of any strange incidents connected with the property. The little girl, of course, could conceivably have died many generations ago. A couple of weeks later, on a stormy, windy night, Emily turned up again. Jim had set the alarm for 3 a.m. in order to go out fishing. Shortly before the alarm went off, we were awakened from a sound sleep by a howling just outside our bedroom window. It really didn't sound like a domestic dog. The tone was closer to that of a coyote. It was probably someone stray, caught in the storm, but it sure was a desolate, eerie sound. Neither of us could get back to sleep, and Jim got up to take his shower. He didn't tell me this at the time, not wanting to frighten me. But as soon as he opened our bedroom door, he could feel that there was someone out in the hallway between our room and the bathroom. I did notice that he stood in our open bedroom door for a minute or so before going down the hall. Faced with this sense of an unknown presence standing in front of him in the dark, he actually put his head down, stretched one arm out in front of him, and walked, or rather dove, down the dark hallway to the bathroom. He switched the light on and looked back to find that the hall was empty. He took a shower and left the house. I was just dozing off again when I felt the bed go down on one side. Apparently, someone had sat down next to me. I was lying on my stomach, my arms tucked under me. I thought at first that it was one of the kids, but when no one spoke, my heart started beating faster. Before I could lift my head or look around, I felt someone sitting on my upper back, someone about the weight of a young child. I then felt, God, this gives me the creeps, a hand stroking the back of my head. I don't know whether it was five minutes or a few seconds, but it seemed to go on forever. I couldn't move. I don't know if you've ever had dreams where you're being pursued by something and your legs melt beneath you, but it was just that kind of feeling. I didn't seem to have any muscles. Pinned under this unseen weight, I just lay there, feeling the soft, intermittent stroking on the back of my head. Then the adrenaline began to flow, and gathering all my strength, I flung myself out of the bed, half falling on the floor. I remember shrieking, get out of here. Get out of here. Needless to say, I was up the rest of the morning. 
When Jim got in later in the day and I told him shakily what had happened, he said, oh yes, she was out in the hallway when I got up. I could have killed him for not telling me before he left the house. There were times when I would walk into my bedroom during the day and feel that she was sitting in the caned chair in the corner by one of the windows. I couldn't see anything, but I would look over there, and then I would hear a rustle from the chair seat as if someone had just stood up. This would be followed by sequential creaking of the floorboards as if she were walking around the edge of the room. The creaking always followed the same route moving around by the wall, in front of my dresser, and out the door. It was as if I had disturbed her, and she got up and left the room. The following winter, we went to Florida for a couple of weeks. I packed everything away and closed up the house. When we got home, I opened the front door to find hundreds of dead black flies in the foyer. They were great big horse flies, the kind you don't usually see inside in the winter. They were so thick underfoot that I swept up a big dustpan full of them. What a horrible welcome. Even worse, when I went to put the kids to bed, I turned back their covers and found that both of their beds were filled with the same kind of large dead flies. They were under the covers, as if someone had turned back each bed, thrown the flies in on the bottom sheet, and then made the beds up. Although Jimmy had only seen Emily that one night, he definitely had a harder time dealing with her apparent existence than the rest of us did. As long as we lived in that house, he was afraid of being alone, couldn't sleep, and worried that he would see her again. I must admit that my initial feeling of sympathy for that little girl changed pretty rapidly to one of apprehension, and then after that experience in the bedroom, simple horror. The sight of her, the feeling of being pinned on my bed and having someone touching the back of my head, the creaking sounds, the black flies, Living with that unknown child is something I will never forget. A Little Girl by Blue Balliette. Read by Marita Morrissey. And we're back. We hope you enjoyed those stories. Over the last several weeks at Whitehern Radio Theater, we've been happy to bring you some great ghost stories based on Blue Balliette's Nantucket Ghosts, 44 True Accounts. And we've had some wonderful readers come in and uh, tell these stories on our broadcasts. But all of it needs to be supported by a great soundscape. And that's why I thought today it would be fun if we introduced you to my good friend John Gramada, who is a sound designer and also composes original music for these broadcasts. John is a, the... Um, uh, a, a Broadway sound designer for over 40 Broadway shows, Drama Desk Awards, Tony-nominated uh, uh, sound designer, as well as um, a film composer, and has done incredible work. 
And I welcome uh, you, John, here, and we're glad to talk to you. Thanks, Mark. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Uh, John, were you a, a fan of old-time radio drama from the golden age of radio? Did you ever listen to it? I love it. I mean, I, when I was a kid, uh, this New York radio station where I grew up, WRVR, started mm-hmm. to broadcast The Shadow mm-hmm. and The Green Hornet when, yeah. when I was, I think, 11 or 12. So I would, I would put it on at night. Uh, under my pillow, I'd listen to the Green Hornet and and the Shadow, and it was completely unknown. You know, I grew up watching television, and I didn't even know radio drama existed. Right. And then suddenly, there there it is, and it's it it just allowed me to use my imagination in a way I'd never done before. So someone that must be staying with you now as you're working on all this. I I have to think so. I have to think so. <laughs> it's always amazing to me. I've worked with John um, uh, as a director. I've worked with John as a sound designer at theaters around the country. And I'm always fascinated by how you use sound and what sound means to you. And as you approach this um, particular medium, it seems to be playing to all of your strengths. And I'm so amazed by what you do every week on these shows. How is, what does sound actually mean to you? And how do you think in terms of, of sound as an element of storytelling? Well, I guess it's not what sound means to me. It's mm-hmm. like it's actually what it does to people. Ah. You know, it's, and what I'm, what I'm finding myself is that sound... Sound affects your, your lizard brain, right? Mm-hmm. It, it directly connects you to a part of your brain that text doesn't. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and that's why it can be so manipulative. On the stage, it's very, it's very sneaky because you, you don't, you're watching things and you're seeing things, but you're, and you're not understanding how sound's working on you. But in radio drama, mm-hmm. you're, you're only listening and somehow you're, you know, it's directly connecting to your, what I like to call your lizard brain, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's affecting your emotions in a way more directly even than text. You know, somehow text has to be decoded and then it affects your emotions in a way, but you're going through this kind of frontal cortex. Whereas with, in sound, sound directly touches your parts of your brain that are, you know, reach back to your, your inner animal. I love it. You know, these are all ghost stories, so you're also able to dig into the ideas of things that scare us, but also things that make us feel melancholy. You're creating soundscapes of rooms and other eras and other times. How do you choose all of those different uh, kind of elements from the catalog, and where, where do you find that within you, as well as writing original music? The sounds that we hear on Nantucket have emotional content that really affects you subconsciously. It affects your experience here on the island. Uh, for instance, I mean, the Namska horn, the horn of the, the, the eagle, right? The eagle horn was a fairy horn that came off the old Namska ferry. Just the sound of that horn gives you a sense of place, gives you the island. It also has this emotional content, like all the other sounds. So I'm, you know, I'm always looking for sounds that have some kind of emotional feeling that will forward the story, firstly, and also provide some sense of... Um, of, of a feeling and of a feeling, whether that feeling be anxiety, mm-hmm. whether it be melancholy, mm-hmm. um, uh, whether it be excitement or happiness. And, and you know, it sounds, they, they, they have those. I don't understand exactly why they have those feelings. <laughs> and there are people who have done scientific uh, analyses of the, of these things of like why the, why the certain, certain musical intervals have certain psychological impact on people. But I'm, and I'm exploring those things in my work in the theater and also here on the, on the radio. As you go around Nantucket, are your ears always up for what is an iconic Nantucket sound? Because the idea of White Heron Radio Theater, the Ghost Light series, is to serve a Nantucket audience and tell stories that celebrate the island history. And the island has a particular ebb and flow of sounds, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I mean, there, there, you know, there, are, there are sounds that are very particular to, to this kind of maritime environment. And one is the foghorns, <laughs> uh, the sound of the, uh, the, 
of the Brant Point lighthouse in the fog. I mean, yeah. there are certain, so the, those, those sounds, and again, those sounds have this emotional content. There's this, this is sort of like a, it's like a French horn sound that's, that's drawn out and you hear it in the distance and you hear it kind of reverberate out <laughs> and it's a, it's a lonely sound and you immediately think of fog and, and, uh, and of course the sound of the gulls and those, right. those are things, I mean, I'm fascinated with bird sound. I collect bird sounds and, I want to always make sure that the birds that you hear in, in theater or in a radio drama are actual birds that you would hear in that particular place. You don't want to get a, an angry email from someone saying, that bird would never be here. Exactly, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. But even I find with you know, individual bird sounds, the different sounds have different emotional content. Yeah. So in, in theater, too, I often will pick bird song that's very particular to what emotional uh, story I want to tell. Right. So, so here, even the birds, the birds in, in all these different stories function in different ways. And they're very particularly, they're very specifically chosen for their their content. I hear it all over the place. In some moments where a character is in an anxious moment in the story, all of a sudden a bird will cry somewhere so that the use of the environment mirrors the character's emotional state. I want to make Nantucket alive, you know, yeah. in Under the Scallop Shells, mm-hmm. when our protagonist is actually speaking to the, to the ghost, right. her imaginary friend. I wanted to make it seem like the island is speaking to her and somehow she's interpreting the conversation with her friend out of sounds from the island. So uh, it's, it's as if, you know, she's hearing these things and she's actually decoding something that no one else can decode, but it's right there for everyone else to hear, but they don't actually understand the code to know what the ghost or the island is saying to them. Right. And I actually feel that way about sound in general, is that, is, that, is that all these places are speaking to you, and if you just listen, you hear so much, and you can understand so much more about a place or a time if you just listen to what, is going on in the environment. We've been getting really terrific emails and people telling us that they're having listening parties and they're really enjoying the stories um, in a way that they never even expected. And a lot of people have said that they like to listen uh, at night with their eyes closed and really try and dig into what you've done. And it's funny, as I've been adapting them or looking at the text, I'm really drawn to the moments where characters might say, oh my gosh, do you hear those footsteps? Or where there is a storm, obviously, I can't help but write in a storm. But um, there's so many moments in, inside houses where there's creaking, where there's a muffled sound coming from somewhere else in these ghost stories. And, you know, you've been able to, we're, we're crafting them towards an acoustic experience. How do you find some of those sounds that belong to houses or footsteps or any number of things that you put in the broadcast? There are some sounds that I make myself. I, I own an 1860 house in the Hudson Valley, and <laughs> luckily it is, it's a wealth of, of sounds. You know, I, get, I have great <laughs> creaking sounds. I have creaking staircases. I have sashes I can throw up and down. Um, and, uh, I, and I collect them. I mean, over the years, I've collected many sounds. I collected creaks and squeaks, and, and uh, every time I hear a door, I just, as, as I walked into the theater today, I hear that white heron door opening. I'm like, oh, that's a fantastic door squeak. I have to record that. In the tipping table, um, the character of Hibbert uh, hears a... A phonograph, and then he speaks to a ghost, and then he hears a crash happen up in the attic, and he runs up up the stairs. How did you get those sounds in particular in that section? Well, first of all, I ran up the stairs myself at my house, <laughs> up and down. In my, those are your my, footsteps. Those are my footsteps, and my cats were really confused about what I was doing, <laughs> as they often they often are. But then, is also I was trying, you know, trying to figure out how to get the sound of the character who's, who's, you know, trying to imagine like, where is she? What is she? She's like, she's okay. She's falling through the floor. Mm-hmm. What sound would that make? What, what would the sound be actually of her being pulled out? So I, I had a, um, I, I stretched some leather to get the sound of, uh, you know, Jeremy Sherman's character great. pulling her out of the floor. You know, <laughs> so I, so I have like a belt that I stretched and recorded closely, so you hear that. 
and then then I have some sounds of wood freeing and splintering and that kind of thing. But it also is. I mean, when you use sounds in the theater and in the radio, you you have to use sounds that are more theatrical than it the the actual event might have been. Ah. So yeah. um, and you, and also there are iconic sounds that people think sound a certain way you know so you're playing into what people's expectations of what a sound is like i don't know what a person actually being pulled out of a floor sounds like <laughs> i have to create something that is believable at why <laughs> <laughs> um in a play like harry's ghost which we recorded does hearing the actor liam craig read the ghost of harry does hearing the actor's delivery um sort of give you an idea of what kind of music you might write to that uh, text Oh, yeah, I, I'm absolutely. I mean, really what I do, too, is I'll, I'll take segments of the text and I will, I'll just take a segment and I'll put it up in my music software that I composed to I, and I will just sort of start improvising around the text and see what lands. And, I, and really how I write music is, is structured improvisation in general. Mm-hmm. I'll have an emotional response, a visceral response to an, an actor's words, and then I will try to structure it further. Um, and listen to what they're doing and see if it's supported. Does it not support it? Do I, how do I, do I let them breathe? And I find I can get away a lot more with that in radio and also when I score films than in theater. So it um, seemed to me that you heard Judy Ivey's beautiful read as the narrator in Scallop Shells and um, matched her emotional take on the, the words with a kind of beautiful melody that sat right underneath it and matched her. Well, it's tricky, you know, with someone as, as talented as Judy and Liam, they, they can tell so much with their voices that you don't want to get in the way of what they're doing. Right. Um, and you want to try to be supportive. So mm-hmm. with both with Judy and with Liam and with Jeremy, I try to start really simply. With, with Judy's first monologue, I chose to be very simple. And I tried to do that with denser things, but really simplicity is the key. It's yeah. to, you know, really letting the words speak, let the actor lead the way and then I'll try to follow and, and amplify. I noticed there's some beautiful places too where you have allowed us in our mind's eye to feel that characters are very far away. Nina Hellman calling to her daughter down the beach sounds miles away, but she doesn't. How do you think in terms of creating a distance when that's not what we give you when we record these lines? It's necessary. I'm not, frankly, I could do a lot more if I had more time. Of course. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, the theater artists lament. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's, part, it's, it's again, it's about imagining where people are situated and distance is, is really key to creating a sense of drama. And really what you're doing when you're doing sound and music for these radio dramas is stimulating the audience's imagination to create the scene for themselves. So again, often a simpler solution is the best one. And you know, our human brain really can do more to establish the environment than I can. I mean, I can't, you know, filling it all out in detail would just be too dense. Yeah. But you just, you know, you just, just simple sounds, the audience actually fills in the rest. But it's so funny, John, you know, just a little detail, and I, I have to listen to them over and over again. I go, man, he added that in. Like something as simple as a chair being pulled back very subtly or something makes me feel like a character has gotten up. And I know that you're putting all these little details in that people might not notice initially, but they're they're going to sort of like um, marinate in uh, and, and get all of that somehow, whether they know it or not. You know what I mean? You know, um, in this time where audiences can't congregate and we all miss doing so at the theater, um, the idea was if they can't come to the theater, then we would bring stories to the audience however we could. And it really does feel uh, like a nice thing to, you, to, to do also, to know that there are people out there listening wherever they are and that we're still able to tell stories and share a communal experience 
And we're so grateful to you for making it come to life. Our actors and Blue and everyone involved are wonderful. But the secret weapon is making sure that the audience's imagination is transported through your your incredible soundscape, your incredible um, original music. And I'm personally grateful after all the years of knowing you too to have this time to explore a new medium and have this really remarkable experience with you. This programming was made possible by the generous contributions of our loyal supporters and patrons like you. You are the makers of great theater on Nantucket, and we thank you. For more information about White Heron Theater and our company, including ways to support programs like this one, please visit us at whiteherontheater.org or give us a call at 508-228-2156. We're saving your seat. <laughs>